You're listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine, a roundup of this week's leading stories and industry comment from the world of investor relations. Direct from our central London studio, here's your host, Rory Havelock. This week on the Ticker Podcast, UK companies urged to scrap quarterly reporting, research into the buy and sell side relationship, and advice from an activist investor. Welcome back to the Ticker Podcast. It's a weekly roundup for the top stories from around the world of investor relations. Though three is a crowd, two is certainly company. So I'm joined by Tim Heumann and Carnet Roach in the IO Magazine studios today. Good morning, guys. Good morning, morning Laurie. Um, and there's just time for a very quick first story today. Um, and if you've been anywhere near the internet this week, you may have heard the name Boatie McVoteface being bandied around. And no, it's not a new kids TV show or an interesting named pop singer, but the proposed name for a new British research ship after the Natural Environment Research Council decided to crowdsource its new name. Yes, the NERC opened up the option to name its latest £200 million polar research vessels to the public in the hope of attracting the names of beloved scientific figures of the past. A few days after the poll was open, and the clear favourite is still the RRS Boaty McBoatface, with well over 30,000 votes and still climbing. Distant second is the option to name it after Henry Worsley, the British explorer who died in January near the end of his attempts to become the first person to cross the Atlantic unaided. Well, aside from the entry that's winning at the moment, other less uh, sobering entries include the RSS It's Bloody Cold Here, the RSS What Iceberg? Question mark, the RSS Captain Haddock, Big Ship In It, the RSS Science with three exclamation marks, and the RSS Big Metal Floaty Thingy Thing. Um, James Hand, who's a former BBC presenter, uh, penned the McBoatface name and has publicly apologised for his suggestion after the idea took off, uh, but he didn't sound entirely like he regretted the move. Uh, he suggested the far more sensible RSS David Attenborough as an alternative now. Um, I'm amazed, though, that um, in light of this, investors can keep things so sensible on their ballots at AGM. Surely they'd be up for similar naming japes and some, have some kind of boaty McBoatface level hell raised when you're particularly bored or rich. I know, I'd feel, I'd feel in the mood for that. Have you heard of any weird ballots come in from shareholders? No, I haven't. I mean, that story does, does um, makes me think of, our, of the new awards we've just set up. Oh, yeah. Um, for our US awards and our European awards, where we're opening them up to the public vote. And it really is letting go of control, isn't it? Anything could happen. Any, any level of Boaty McBoatface interaction could, could occur. Somebody, um, somebody pointed out in, in the newspaper that this was a very British thing to do that when we're given the opportunity to um, wreck an online poll like this, then we'll welcome it with open arms. And they pointed to other situations like, apparently the, the Spice Girls were um, had a poll about where they would go on tour, and the British public uh, voted to send them to Baghdad. I didn't <laughs> see that. There was definitely Pitbull, um, the, who's, a, who's an American rapper, and it was a worldwide poll, and you could, again, send him anywhere in the world you wanted, and he got sent to Antarctica to play a crowd of about 30, I think which I think is pretty ingenious. But his, his response to that, I remember, was good. He was like, I will go wherever Pitbull's fans want me. <laughs> I do love that kind of British attitude towards things. And I personally think that Boaty McBoatface is an excellent name for a polar research ship. So, Yeah, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm, maybe we're laughing too readily. It's, you know, it's a very sensible name. Oh, well, anyway, we're going we're gonna to move swiftly on to Garnet before we get into too much trouble. Um, and you've been, you've been speaking to um, shareholder troublemakers, I guess you could call them, um, activist investors and some advice um, from direct from the activist's mouth. Well, I haven't actually been talking to activists. Um, rather, Neil Stewart, our editorial director, has been talking to Greg Taxin from Luma Asset Management as part of his new video series, On Message with Neil Stewart, produced by Bloomberg and IR Magazine. 
The latest in this series sees Greg offer tips for IROs who want to learn how to work with a new generation of constructive activists and not necessarily fight them. Despite essentially working as an activist, Greg has also been brought in by a number of companies to advise them on how they can best protect themselves against an attack. And I've picked out a few of these um, key points to share with you. And one of those is that you should never underestimate an activist. So regardless of whether the activist is right or wrong, Greg points out that they're definitely not going to be uninformed. They'll have looked at both what's available publicly and what's available semi-publicly. So things like LinkedIn profiles of directors and officers, for example. And they'll also have talked to dozens of people from competitors to former executives. Greg says, quote, the challenge for the IR person is to make sure they too have looked at all the information, thought about how it could be perceived by shareholders and taught truth to management about the vulnerabilities and things that should be done to create value at the company. Obviously, uh, having done the, the homework is a, a critical element, but, but also then in the event somebody shows up, I think the, the most important thing is those first you know, couple of weeks and the way the tone really with which the company interacts with the activist. And we've, we've seen shifts over time here, but um, you know, there are companies still today who respond with sort of tired canards and an unwillingness to meet and a, you're a short-termer and you don't understand my business and I can't learn anything from you and we've already thought about all the options. And, and that sort of stiff arm will, will really sort of annoy not just the activist, but all of the investors who, after all, are just looking for the company to make the best decisions they can based on all the information available. So, so I think in the first instance, the tone of response, the willingness to meet and talk and be open about mistakes and changes that are coming and, and, and sort of being thoughtful is critical. He then goes on to talk about setting the right tone. And in fact, Greg says that the first couple of weeks are particularly important in responding to an activist. He also advises companies to avoid advisor bloat as they seek to find as many different points of view as possible. And he says that there's a danger um, when a company does this that they'll appear overly defensive um, as well as simply spending too much shareholder money on advisors. And the third point I wanted to highlight is um, Greg's advice that companies try to avoid a proxy fight. Part of the reason for this is that the people who vote are generally not the analysts who cover the stock, he explains, and that's quite crucial for IR professionals to understand. Instead, the people that are voting will be from the corporate governance department, for example, and they'll be looking at bigger thematic points, like if the board can be trusted to do the right thing. They won't know the company or industry well and aren't able to assess subtle points about capital allocation, for example. I like to say proxy fights are really morality tales. You know, they're, they're about who's the white hat and who's the black hat and, and painted fair, with fairly you know, broad strokes rather than the minutia that probably the IR professional is more accustomed to dealing with you know, with the industry analyst or the stock analyst at, at the various institutions. Some very good advice from Greg there. And there's a lot more available on our YouTube channel as well. There's a whole series of these videos that Neil Stewart's done. Um, you can check them out at youtube.com forward slash investor relations mag. Um, I think there's a series of five. Is that right? Five videos at the moment? Yeah, there's five videos of interviews with Greg Taxin. Um, and, and they really are interesting. Lots of very good points that he makes. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's great to hear that kind of thing directly from, from an activist. They're going to be able to give the best advice possible. But I'm going to move on to another group of shareholders that have demand for listed companies, a little less stringent. And it's a large gathering of FTSE 100 shareholders who have sent out some new demands for the UK's largest companies. 
uh, chief among these demands is for blue chip firms to stop producing quarterly updates, among several other moves intended to change the way that stakeholders can interact with their companies. Uh, the request is recruited in a report published by the Investment Association, or IA, whose members own approximately a third of all the companies that make up the FTSE 100. It's called Supporting UK Productivity with Long-Term Investment. It sets out a number of changes designed to make UK companies pay more attention to their long-term strategy. And though a few of the country's largest firms, including Unilever, Diageo and Legal in General, have already stopped producing quarterly reports, uh, most continue to make their three-monthly disclosures. Quarterly reporting is something I looked at for a feature for the Spring Edition, so that's one group of shareholders. But what do shareholders more broadly think about this? Do we have any information on that? I'm not entirely sure. There's not a definitive, you know, survey been done of shareholders yet. Um, it's something that a lot of companies are obviously facing more questions about. And uh, I think probably as more organisations drop the practice, it's going to cause more and more to examine what they already do and see if it's right. But interestingly, and here's a sneak piece of some data to be included in this year's Investor Perception Study for the US. It's going to be published later on this year. Uh, investors and analysts there are a little less equivocal about the change. Um, nearly three quarters of our research sample are, mo- are against moving away from quarterly reports. That's only 27% of the buy side and 22% of the sell side who say that they're for the change at all. So uh, not too much enthusiasm from from the investment community, I don't think. It's very different in the US, um, mm. isn't it, though? The, it's not really seen as something in the US that's, that's maybe going to change particularly soon, I think. No, perhaps not, but like maybe some of the shareholders are going to be the same. They're going to have UK stocks and US stocks as well. Yeah, and I, I spoke to um, Unilever about this a while back, mm. and, and they said that when they dropped their quarterly forecasts um, quite a few years ago, one of the reasons they hadn't done that before is because they had so many US shareholders who still wanted that from them. So even though they're a European company, mm. they obviously had to look at what their, their US shareholders wanted as well. Yes, I think Janet, who's, who's currently writing the, the investor perception study, said there was a quote from an investor saying it'd be like not seeing your kids once a year or once every couple of months or something. <laughs> so clearly they feel quite strongly about it. And did they focus on anything else aside from uh, quarterly reporting in their statement? Yes, there are a couple of other things. They've produced this huge kind of 50-page report. Um, and actually, the group's already been working closely with the UK Chancellor, George Osborne, um, after contacting following last year's budget. Um, and a lot of this is stuff that they've discussed and with him, apparently. Um, it's also going to ask UK companies for clearer measures of long-term performance and call for increased investment in forward-looking research. Again, that long-term focus coming to the fore. Other areas highlighted by the IA include improved reporting on capital management and non-financial factors, including human capital which is something that comes up in integrated reporting a lot these new tenets for improving reporting feed into 11 action points designed to open up perceived barriers to long-term investment and sketch out how the uk capital markets can help businesses to drive sustainable returns further areas targeted for improvement include um, enhanced investor stewardship and engagement strengthening behavioral incentives and overcoming tax and regulatory impediments to creating long-term value um, the ia is going to be updating everyone on the progress of this program every I think every year or two years I think at least the first and third anniversary of its launch and they're going to report on it every quarter so it's been interesting to see how these how these guidelines affect UK companies going forward. Oh we'll have a quarterly reports on how many companies are no longer reporting quarterly. (laughs) Yeah I wonder if that I wonder if they're aware of that particular irony yeah well you know I think four more quarterly reports is a small price to pay for getting rid of some other ones. And um, presumably we'll hear more about what the buy and sell side have to say about that. But Tim, you've been looking into the relationship between the buy and sell side and whether they're comfortable bedfellows in this Edelman research. Yes, Edelman, the uh, financial communications firm, has recently conducted a survey of 10 very large US companies um, with an average market cap of 200 billion. So, So very big firms, to which we have the exclusive findings. 
Of course, IR at very large firms is very different to other cap sizes. But this survey gives us an interesting look at what companies with large teams and, and big resources are doing with their IR programs. The survey covers various different areas, but the part I'm going to focus on today, as you mentioned, is the relationships with uh, the buy and sell side of these firms. But how do sell side interactions look for these big firms? First of all, respondents have, uh, on average, 30 covering sell side analysts, uh, a not uncommon figure for, for large companies nowadays in general. An interesting trend among this group is that they are cutting down on participating in sell side conferences and broker run non deal roadshows. Uh, the respondents said this was because these events were a drain on management's time and also provided diminishing returns on investment. So uh, for this group of large firms at least, the the sell side is becoming less influential in its uh, IR efforts. However, some companies did still put an emphasis on conference participation. These were the ones that were looking to expand coverage beyond their regular sector. Um, An an example given by the survey is, is, for example, retail companies wanting to be viewed as tech companies. So for them, uh, South conferences were still very important. Well, that's conferences then. Are there any trends in the roadshow space apart from, as you mentioned, working less with the sales side? Yes, many of the groups said they are moving toward uh, doing more events um, on their own property, for example, at their headquarters. So actually, in terms of roadshows, doing less um, traveling, maybe less roadshows and doing more things where they don't have to move and the investors come to them. Uh, and the respondents said this was because it's much more easy to make uh, management and a large group of management available to investors if investors come to them. Often the firms will organise these things themselves. However, they're also relying on the sell side to help them in these efforts, which is when, when, when brokers help out, this is commonly referred to as reverse roadshow. It's interesting to hear that. I think from the what I remember writing in the practice report and the global roadshow report, that tends to be more of a less of a US thing and more of a, an Asian company thing, right? They'll, they'll tend to do the reverse roadshows and the site visits. They'll generally bring investors over to look at their operations and have a tour as well as meet the management. What else did, did the report have to say about buy-side interactions as well? Yes, yeah, so we, we've talked about the sell-side a bit, but the report also focuses on buy-side interactions um, so we've got some interesting insights into how these large firms organise their, their buy-side relationships. At these firms, there is a common mandate for the C-suite to meet with the top 20 shareholders in person once a year. Um, and, and, this is, and all these meetings are scheduled and coordinated in-house. So what these firms are doing, and I think this is again common among larger firms, not just mega cap firms, is to take their larger shareholders and say, we're going to handle those in-house. We're going to make sure our management gets to meet all of them throughout the year. At these firms in the sample, uh, senior members of the IR team were then responsible for one-on-one meetings with uh, Tier 2 and Tier 3 shareholders. A number of the uh, respondents mentioned that at least one member of their team travels every week to meet with the buy side. Um, so that's an awful lot of travel, and, and uh, these firms must have absolutely huge uh, travel budgets to um, maintain a program like that. Or at least a lot of air miles to spend. Mm. <laughs> Hopefully they can save them up for their holidays. And so can our readers find out a bit more about these findings? Are the, are the, full, are the full ones available online somewhere? Yes, all of the findings are, are available across uh, three articles. So we put up part one last week, which is about uh, sort of team structure and team skills. The part on the, uh, the buy side and the sell side that we've just been discussing uh, went up this week. And then the final section, part three of these findings, goes up next week. And that's on a, a range of different areas, for example, social media, earnings, and a couple of other parts of IR practice. We've grouped a few things together for that final part. Amazing. Well, keep your eyes um, glued to irmagazine.com for the latest update on there and, of course, all our other articles from the week. Uh, we have just uploaded all of the 
um, content from our spring edition of IR Magazine. Um, if you're a subscriber to the magazine, you can read it all on there. And if you're not a subscriber, well, you can have a you can have a glimpse of what you might be missing. Of course, we're on social media still. We're still at Twitter at IR Magazine, and you can get hold of us if you want to send in any tidbits or inf- interesting information to the ticker. Uh, it's editorial at irmagazine.com. Um, but I think we're gonna we're gonna run away, guys. It's our Easter holidays this weekend. Um, luckily, in the UK, we've got the Monday off as a as an extra bank holiday. But we'll be back next time. Woohoo! <laughs> woohoo! <laughs> Enthusiastic woohoo's all around. And um, we'll see you. We'll see you next time, guys. Thanks for joining us again. Thank you very Thanks, Laurie. much. We'll be back next week. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. You've been listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine. For free access to all the latest global investor relations news and analysis, register at irmagazine.com or download the app.